This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, May 13th, 2022. And with me on the phone from his office in Fort Smith is Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Well, it's uh, it's always nice to talk to a, a new person. I enjoy Kyle, but um, he tells me that you're well suited to the task. Well, let's hope I can uh, hold up my end of the bargain. Uh, <laughs> I'm not worried about it. All right. So what do we have first? Well, um, the story that's blowing up our website, we first posted on May the 10th, so earlier this week, is this announced demolition of St. what's an iconic building uh, in Fort Smith, St. Scholastica Monastery. I mean, it is just an icon. Like I said, you can see it from 540 when you get off of Rogers Avenue. It's just part of the landscape that you see looking west uh, into Fort Smith. And it's an almost 100-year-old building. Uh, it was built in the late Gothic Revival style. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. And the, um, the Bened- this particular uh, group of, of nuns, Benedictine, Benedictine nuns, uh, began their order in 1879. Uh, we all remember 1879 when Rutherford Hayes was president. Yes, very well. Uh, and they eventually made it to Fort Smith. It was a school, or they started a school. This building was completed in 1924, the one that's now set for demolition. And that demolition set to begin June 1st. Long story short, it was a school. Eventually, I think the last time it was used as a school was around 1958. Then it was housed, then it was primarily just a monastery for the nuns. In February 2019 was the last time they used it as a monastery. That's when they moved out, so it's set empty. It needed a roof, and they needed about $5 million several years ago to put a roof on it, and they didn't, and that's caused a lot of water damage to the inside, mold and, and any number of things. The estimate now to renovate it is $15 million. I've been told it's considerably higher than that. But anyway, the announcement, you, this is not, Matthew, it's not a new thing. I think everybody knew that it was in jeopardy for years, but it's when the nuns put a date certain on when demolition was going to begin that everyone started scrambling, although some people may argue they should have been scrambling before then. But we've been told several attempts to find some type of remedy, some type of rescue. Uh, We hope to have a story maybe earlier next week about some of those attempts. The nuns have been pretty certain, though, that that they've decided to tear it down and they're going to put a plan in. I think their term was uh, they're going to come up with a plan that reflects their, quote, desire to be good stewards of their land and their commitment to serve the greater Fort Smith community. So who knows what that is, but this is definitely quite a buzz. I haven't seen a buzz like this over a building uh, in a long time. I talked to a couple of folks this week. I I don't need to say who they are yet, but one person likened it to the, I think you may remember there was a decision a long time ago to demolish Old Main on the Fayetteville campus. And um, people raised hell about that and said, nope, and found the money to save it. And some have likened this structure to that. And, and of course, everything's relative in terms of the importance to Fort Smith. So we'll we'll see, Matthew, what happens. But it would be a shame for such an iconic structure, a large, and it's a very large building, again, on the National Register of Historic Places, just to be just to be demolished. And I don't know if they'd sell it for a parking lot or another street right. mall. That, that leads really well. Uh, you know, we're looking at this as uh, showing is scheduled to be demolished on June 1st. You know, who owns the land that the monastery uh, sits on and, and where does it go once it's demolished? What what happens to the land from there? Do you know? Well, that's the, the, the order, the Benedictine nuns. The order owns the property. And that's what I'm saying. They're going to they say they're going to come up with a plan. Who knows what that is? There was They attempted a year or so ago to sell a corner of this property. By the way, it's a very beautiful property right in the middle of Fort Smith, wooded property. But they were going to try to sell a corner of that to Casey's, the uh, gas station, mm. convenience store. And a couple of nearby owners objected, killed the deal, and they the deal, like I said, fell through. The nuns were hoping to use proceeds from that sale to, you know, from what I've been told, put proceeds from that sale into the roof to kind of restore it to prevent further damage. But that didn't happen. So I don't know. We'll see. It's There's just a lot of a lot of questions. A lot of people in the community don't want to see it come down. We're hoping to get some comments from uh, city officials, chamber officials about what they're doing, if anything, to try to save it. But it'd be, it'd be an expensive proposition, Matthew, to keep this thing, uh, keep this structure up. And to renovate it into some kind of useful purpose. 
Moving on here, former Arkansas legislator uh, Denny Altez, who is running for the Republican seat, uh, for running for the Republican nomination for Sebastian County judge, has been charged with a count of abuse of public trust. He's uh, been a longtime legislator. He's represented Fort Smith in the Arkansas House uh, and the Senate. He was a drug czar, drug czar for a few years for um, Governor Hutchinson. But he allegedly, and Emily White, who's a special prosecuting attorney for the 12th Judicial District, investigated the case, and she's filed charge. He's a, she didn't lay out what the charge was, but several sources we've talked to that are familiar with the case said that he allegedly bribed one of the other candidates. He's facing uh, Steve Holtz. Uh, and Jeffrey Tur- Jeff Turner, Steve Holtz is now the Sebastian County Treasurer and Collector, and uh, Jeff Turner is the Sebastian County Administrator. They're both in the race. It's a three-person race. It's in the GOP primary. There is no Democrat, so the winner of the primary wins. But the, a trial, there will be a trial. A trial date has not been set, but it's a very serious charge. Judge William Randall Wright, he's with the 8th Judicial District down in South Arkansas. Uh, he's been appointed to oversee the trial because all of the local circuit court judges have recused themselves. So, but the thing is, Matthew, he could, the trial is going to be after the election. He could technically win <laughs> that primary and be the county judge and face this trial. So it's going to be, um, uh, if he, again, if he wins the primary, it'll be interesting to see how he, how the, uh, is adjudicated on the charge and if he gets to keep his office. And it just reminds us how important voting in primaries are, right? That you've said that there is no Democrat running on the other side of the ticket. And so whoever is chosen from this primary uh, will certainly become the next judge, right? Yep. And this is this is an open seat. Um, Sebastian County Judge David Hudson, who's held the job for, gosh, over 20 years, I want to say. It's been a long time. He's decided to retire. So it's um, this is uh, it's an open seat. That's why it drew so much interest. Uh, the Fort Smith Public Schools Board of Education has approved a new salary schedule for teachers with an average of a 5.89% pay increase. Michael, this is something we've been talking about off and on for, it seems like, a month. What information do we have on this? Well, I think the the news here is they finally got a pay plan. This is the second or third iteration that they tried to bring forth. Now, remember what really started the controversy is when um, Superintendent Terry Murawski essentially received the pay package, a 15% increase since December 30th, 2020. The average teacher pay during that increase during that time was just 1.1%. So there's obvious backlash, uh, outrage. It's an excellent pay plan for new teachers. A lot of veteran teachers were not happy with it because they felt like they were trying to do all they can to recruit new teachers and retain them at the expense of the veteran teachers. Charles Warren, the school district's chief financial officer, his response to that was that the pay plan over the years had had been skewed toward veteran teachers, and this move is just to try to balance it. He called it a market correction. Uh, that did not assuage the veteran teachers, however, or even noted that you know part of their retirement package is based on average pay, and I forget the formula, but they maintain that this pay plan diminishes their ability to to retire. At a higher, with a higher pension, so they, they were not quite happy with that. But anyway, it boosts the pay. Um, according to the school district, the school district ranks tenth now among all 235 school districts with this plan. They'll rank fifth, so it does move them up the uh, does move them up the scale in terms of comparisons to other districts. There was some conversation as well talking about combining or streamlining some of the administrative positions as well. There was talk that uh, there are several administrative positions who earn over $100,000 annually as well. Yeah, there's a significant budget line item for about uh, 25 to 30 admin positions. And the admin positions have grown uh, in the past three to five years. Now, it's you know, the the district, the leadership of the district maintains that those are necessary and that they have to have good pay to attract good people. But a couple of uh, the uh, board members for some public school board members have said, we need to look into this. So there, I anticipate a consultant to be brought in. And depending on <laughs> who the consultant listens to and who pays the consultant, sometimes depends on what the verdict is, so to speak. But that, that will be something that, that gets looked at in the near future. Michael Tilley is from Talk Business and Politics. Michael, uh, enjoy your weekend. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, it's good talking to you, Matthew. This week, the U.S. marks one million lives lost to COVID. We'll hear from a hospital chaplain in Los Angeles about what 
each of those losses has meant. These are a million hearts that we held close and some not so close. We loved and cared together, and now they're gone. That story, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend Edition with Scott Simon, tomorrow morning from 7 to 9 on KUAF 91.3 FM, or you can tell your smart speaker to play KUAF. The Northwest Arkansas Naturals host the Wichita Wind Surge this week at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale. Tickets and promotional information are available at nwanaturals.com. Crystal Bridges presents the 2022 Forest Concert Series beginning May 28th with musical performances each Saturday night through July. This series merges national and local acts in the North Forest where visitors can enjoy live music and dancing, surrounded by art installations by Del Chihuly and more. Crystalbridges.org for tickets and information. Good Friday, this is Ozarks at Large. During the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic, Arkansas foster care and adoption providers and advocates had to innovate to maintain their mission. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. In the autumn of 2020, after a global COVID-19 pandemic had been declared, the number of children in the state foster care system in Arkansas started to climb. Misha Martin, director of the Arkansas Division of Children and Family Services, DCFS for short, in the Arkansas Department of Human Services headquartered in Little Rock, manages child abuse and neglect investigations, consequential placement of children into foster care and adoptions. And the pandemic added huge layers of additional problems. Anything from kids, foster parents, providers actually having COVID, which led to you know placement challenges and service challenges. Um, but then what we're coming out of the pandemic, as many across um, different industries are seeing, workforce challenges. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the COVID-19 pandemic triggered one of the worst employment crises since the Great Depression, which continues to reverberate. A record number of Americans applied for unemployment due to widespread workplace closures and COVID-19 outbreaks pre-vaccine. We faced even higher than normal turnover. Um, and really, as work, the industries across are, you know, seeing turnover and change in jobs, we're seeing that times about two. So meaning like, you know, we have workers that are going in different lines of work. We have workers that are tired, exhausted, doing something different, which leads to challenges as far as new staff and training and hiring and making sure that we have all the institutional knowledge that we need to better serve children, keep them safe and serve the children in foster care. Data show the number of children in foster care in Arkansas sharply rose during the pandemic, peaking at 4,900 in the summer of 2021, which has since declined to around 4,500 early this year. But Martin says that data is misleading. We have seen a decline in how not only the number of kids um, finding permanent homes, whether that's back with their families or through adoption, um, but how long it takes them to get there, right? So initially when the pandemic started, um, service providers were not offering services. Thankfully, we were up and running pretty quickly, but that caused some delays. And then as you have new staff and um, not just DCFS, but new stakeholders that work with us, when there's a lot of newness in the system, it slows down the process of, of families getting the services they need, working the cases so that children can safely go back with their parents, they can stay with a relative, they can be adopted. The most common reasons for children ending up in foster care? Substance misuse and neglect are the number one factors for children entering foster care. But enlisting enough willing foster families in Arkansas to take in children remains a challenge, Martin says. Wow. So th that's definitely something we should focus on. Um, the pandemic, for obvious reasons, has made it hard for us to recruit, open, and continue to gain foster parents. And we always need more foster parents. A priority, however, is always to place children with relatives and guardians. We are in great need of foster parents. Thankfully, as a system, we have really embraced relatives and fictive kin. And fictive kin is like teachers, people who know the kids. And so now over 40% of our kids placed in foster care are with, it, with either a relative 
or somebody that they knew when they entered foster care. And I can't emphasize like teachers enough because those are the people that really, or, or and I shouldn't just say teachers, like the education system, counselors, people that work in the lunchroom. I mean, people who know these kids who, when they come into foster care, step up and take them on an emergency basis. And then we open them as foster parents. It can take up to six months for the Arkansas Division of Child and Family Services to approve individuals and families to foster care. It is complicated to be a foster parent. I'll fully admit that because we have to make sure that foster parents are fully vetted and that we're picking safe, appropriate homes. Um, But you can go to our website, um, just Google Arkansas DCFS, and it says right there on the page, it says how to become a foster parent. You click there and fill out an inquiry, and my team starts working with you um, to go through the process. You have to have a home study. You have to do some training. The state compensates foster caregivers between $400 to $450 per month per foster child, called a board payment. So you really can't get into fostering because it's a money-making thing. Like, it is just enough and sometimes not enough to, to feed and clothe the children. But let me also say, for our kids who are special needs or have extra needs, we do support our foster parents with helping cover extracurricular activities. Um, if there is a special need that, that Medicaid doesn't pay for, we do special board rates. So if the board payment is scaring you alone, like work with us on if you take a child, we will make sure that that child is, is taken care of. In Arkansas, COVID-19 vaccines are not required for foster parents and families, but foster children in the system are vaccinated unless a biological parent stands in opposition to shots. County supervisors are in place to enroll prospective foster families and individuals, Martin says, as well as to monitor cases. The Division of Child and Family Services operates a comprehensive website on foster care and adoption as well as how to report child abuse and neglect. Martin says various nonprofits, most faith-based, work to cultivate foster parenting in Arkansas, as well as provide support to foster families. Project Zero, founded a decade ago, securely creates photo galleries, bios, and videos of children waiting and available for adoption from Arkansas Foster Care. Our main focus is to give these children a voice and to help connect them with waiting families. Candace Gerber raises money for Project Zero and manages marketing for the nonprofit. During the pandemic, she says, the number of children available for adoption dropped. From 349, and I hate to call them numbers because they're precious children with precious faces, but our no- the number of actual kids waiting to be adopted dropped from 349 to 298, which is a huge swing for us because even though the pandemic was shutting a lot of things down, Adoptions were still happening. Judges were so wonderful and would go to front lawns and do open air, you know, front yard adoption ceremonies. And um, so things didn't completely, completely shut down. Prior to the pandemic, Project Zero, which means one child plus one family equals zero kids waiting, was hosting dozens of in-person events where children subject to parental rights termination and available for adoption could physically meet with prospective adopted families and couples. And we, um, during the pandemic, we put all of our focus into creating short films, which we had done before, but when we couldn't have in-person events, we um, produced more and more short films to where the kids could talk about what they want in a family, that they want to dog? Do they, what do they like to do? Do they want a family that travels? Do they want a family that just sits at home and plays video games with them? And it was just so inspiring to give these kids a voice and let them share what they were looking for in a family. And they have been very successful in connecting forever families. Project Zero currently hosts short film blitzes, aggregating video profiles of children in sibling groups seeking to be adopted. Gerber says currently nearly 300 children are waiting to be adopted. Over the last 10 years, we've been a part of helping connect over 1,000 children with forever families. The private nonprofit doesn't receive any federal or state funding relying on donations and corporate support. Project Zero also hosts Zoom gatherings facilitated by expert adoptive and foster families. The nonprofit hosts an Arkansas Heart Gallery as well, featuring photos of waiting kids and sibling groups. Only 2% of Americans have adopted, 
but more than a third have considered it, data show. That leaves tens of thousands of youth aged out of the foster care system without a permanent family, according to the latest count by the National Council for Adoption. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Governor Asa Hutchinson joined business and government leaders at a summit to discuss improving the economies of middle America. The governor participated in the Heartland Summit Thursday in Bentonville, and he was part of a panel discussion with J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, Walmart heir Stuart Walton, and Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards. Hutchinson said one of the challenges facing states like Arkansas is the stigma surrounding its workforce. Whenever you look at software engineers, uh, people think of, of uh, uh, Silicon Valley and they think of the uh, East Coast, uh, and we want them to think of the heartland of America because we're producing uh, computer scientists, we're, com- we're creating the software engineers, and they're needed to create the future uh, in technology. In 2015, Governor Hutchinson passed legislation to require schools to offer computer science education. When the initiative began, there were about 1,100 students enrolled in computer science courses in the state, and in 2020, that number grew to about 10,400 students. The governor credits the computer science education legislation for putting the state in the position for the tech jobs that he says will be in demand in the future. This is Ozarks at Large. Spring is in full bloom here in the Ozarks, and for those looking to cultivate a green thumb this year, Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has some help. Last month, everywhere I looked, people seemed to be overturning and uprooting their yards and ceding control of their living rooms to leafy green vines. Neighbors tilled up patches of soil and erected massive raised beds rimmed with chicken wire. I saw people leaving grocery stores with cartloads of potting soil and fistfuls of seeds and trowels. Garden mania had taken root, and I started to wonder, should I be doing the same? And where do I even start? So I turned to an expert. Well, we're at Westwood Gardens at our uh, West store on the west side of Fayetteville on Weddington Drive. That's Uh, Stephen Black. He owns and manages Westwood Gardens in Fayetteville. And if you live in the region and have been similarly gripped by planting fever, you've likely been to one of the store's four locations. Uh, On Weddington Drive and another one on the east side of Fayetteville on Mission and then a store in Springdale on North Thompson, and the other store is in Rogers on New Hope Road. Black's parents, Brenda and Russell, started the business back in the 1970s. On the day we visited the location on West Weddington in Fayetteville, it's an overcast Wednesday morning with just a few customers meandering while employees weave through the aisles, spritzing plants and moving product. Black says they're gearing up for the spring rush. Of course, our, our specialty is that we, um, we grow most of, most of everything we sell in annuals, perennials, roses, and herbs. We grow those. Um, they all start here at the West Weddington store. Uh, we have seven acres, uh, most of which is under, under cover in greenhouses. So we start everything back in December and January and, and, every, and every day since then. Uh, and then as spring approaches, we start moving it out to the other stores. In a, in a mad dash always. So. <laughs> so getting started gardening may seem like a simple task. Plant, water, watch it grow, right? Well, not exactly. Black says there are a few basic questions most beginners need to know before they start digging. Number one, you, you ask shade or sun. And then when they don't know, which they usually don't, uh, then you ask them which side of the house. North side is shady, south side is almost full sun, and it's in, in Arkansas, the south side of the house is, is, is a, almost a, a heat problem sometimes for some plants when the sun goes all day long and it's up against a brick wall or something. Got to be careful. And then the east and west sides, west side is the same as full sun, east side is like a part sun kind of a, an area. And then the next question I usually ask is, uh, are you, do you have an irrigation system and or are you good at watering? because uh, water is what determines whether these will live or die. And uh, a lot of people plant and then kind of never look back. Um, and without supplemental water in Arkansas, especially in July and August, it's just not gonna, it's not gonna keep. And uh, you, you've gotta come back with water. Irrigation systems are great. Of course, not everybody has them. Um, 
But there's a lot you can do with uh, battery-operated timers off of hose bibs and things. So with drip irrigation, that sort of stuff that can really help somebody be successful. He says a big mistake most people make is determining how much sun plants will get. So what almost everybody has uh, is shade, yeah. especially on the north side of your house. Um, uh, and then there's just trees everywhere in northwest Arkansas, so most people's yards are shaded. Uh, so, so that's the, the place where most belong. I will say that most people gravitate to the sun side uh, because there's more color there, there's a lot more brighter colors there, um, and, and there's more variety of plants that'll go out in full sun. Because of course, out in full sun, there's more energy, and the, so the plants can make, make more flowers and make better colors and all of that. Not to say that there's not color for shade, uh, and patients and begonias both are, are great for shade and have real bright colors, and you can do a lot with those. Um, but, but yes, most people uh, need shade plants but think they want sun plants. And so we have to, to kind of help get them into the right section for that, for sure. So once you find out what kind of environment you're working with, Black says the next step is plant selection. So you just kind of, you know, tall stuff in back, short stuff in front. Uh, a lot of trailing plants that you can put right along the edges, that sort of thing. Um, and at that point, it starts to just be personal preference on colors and, and textures. And, and you just, you get, we just kind of get people started and, and, and let them go from there. Black says for those at the very early beginner stage, he suggests to start simple. So herbs might be the best uh, because once they're established, a lot of them are perennial and they'll come back every year. Uh, not all of them, but some. Uh, and they, they can handle getting pretty dry, so they can handle that dry summer real well. Rosemary, sage, uh, thyme, um, those, are, those are all really tough herbs uh, that can handle the summer and continue to grow all through the summer. And they can be really rewarding if you're also into food because you're out harvesting them to, to cook with. We also do some of the not quite as easy herbs like basil, cilantro, lavender. Those, those aren't quite as easy, but, but they are really rewarding. So. Once you feel comfortable with herbs, then Black says you can graduate to vegetables. He points to the selection of pepper and tomato plants that have just been laid out. Uh, I've always told people on tomatoes and peppers that it's best to wait until about May 1st to plant um, because they need warm soil temperatures and, and even if it doesn't freeze and kill the plant, they're really not actively growing until we get on up with the soil temperatures and that takes a while. Um, the other warm season vegetables like um, uh, squash, okra, all of the melons, all of that, um, they also, about May 1st would be a good time to, to, to start planting on those. There are definitely people who disagree with that and think you should plant mid-April or so, but uh, to, to really be safe, it's a good idea to, to wait till then. For all other plants, Black says his general rule for a novice gardener is to start with annuals because and so annuals are the plants that you have to replant every year when they when it freezes they die um, so you so you have to come back and plant them again next spring but they're the fastest growing and they are the most color you can get on on plants uh, so it's a good idea to start there um, they're depending on which plant it is they can be more forgiving on not being watered um, and so it's it's a good idea to get to start there and get your bearings and you'll learn what plants do well and whether they like light and, and you'll learn your, learn your little area. And then once you've, once you've mastered the annuals, then you move on over into perennials or even some shrubs or that sort of thing um, where there's a little bit more maintenance sometimes on perennials. There's not as much color, but boy, when there is, there's a big reward because it's a, usually a pretty unique kind of bloom or a fragrance or something like that. Um, so. So generally, we start with annuals and then move, graduate on up to the other plants as you, as you learn your way around. All right, so you've picked your plants and are ready to get going. Not so fast. After decades of observing and assisting gardeners, Black says there are a couple errors to watch out for if you want a successful garden. A lot of folks plant too deeply. You're supposed to plant at the same soil level as the plant is in the, in the pot that it comes in. And a lot of times people dig a hole too deep and then bury the stem of the plant a little bit, and that can cause a lot of problems. That can, that can just kill a plant if, it, if it's way too deep. 
The big mistake, though, is planting, but not coming back to water. Because especially when you first plant, you know, the, the root mass is right there in the, the small root ball from the pot that it came out of. So they're going to need water about every two to three days, which, and if they're planting in spring, sometimes that takes care of itself. But quite often it doesn't, and you have to, you have to just watch real closely. And once the plant starts to establish itself and get its roots on out into the native soil, then they can become more forgiving and, and you're in better shape. But the, the, the worst mistake is usually, oops, I forgot to water after I planted. They plant on a weekend when they've got their time off, and then they come back seven days later on the next weekend and go, oh, no, something's wrong. So, so some supplemental water during the week, especially right after first planting. No matter what skill level, though, Black says he's just glad to see new, often younger people taking up gardening. Since the pandemic, when people were stuck at home and often had more time on their hands, he says he saw the hobby sort of blossom. Everything just exploded. We've had just crazy gains in sales and everything, and, and new customers everywhere. And if it's, what's exciting for us is we've had a lot of new, younger customers. Uh, so it, it, it looks like younger folks are, are interested in plants and interested in gardening. Um, for a while there, it looks like it was just going to be boomers, <laughs> but, but it, it's changed. It has changed a lot. And so there are a lot of new young folks who have just purchased a home who are just getting into gardening. And that's, that's pretty exciting. That's a fun time to walk somebody through the nursery and kind of help them see what they need to be thinking about and all of that. But for those of us helpless would-be gardeners, Black has just one last recommendation. A absolute beginner gardener should start with begonias and put lantana right behind them. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. We can back here right quick since we're, since we're back here. Distinguished Professor Peter Unger has been selected as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Unger is the first U of A faculty member to be selected to the prestigious academy for a record of accomplishments made while serving at the university. He says he did not know that he had been nominated, but learned of his selection when he opened his email on April 28th and saw this subject line, your election to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, but assumed it was a spam email. I think both of us would assume the same thing, <laughs> yeah, Timothy. Yeah. Unger was elected as part of the anthropology and archaeology section within the social and behavioral sciences class. Join Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art and KUAF Public Radio for the 8th annual live performance, Mozart in the Museum, May 19th, beginning at 7 p.m., with the performance presented live on 91.3 FM. Music director Corrado Rivera's and the Artisphere Festival Orchestra will perform Mozart's Overture to La Clemenza de Tito, his piano concerto number 23, featuring Van Cliburn Competition Laureate pianist Benedetto Lupo, and will complete the performance with Mozart's Symphony Number no. 39. Tickets to the performance at Crystal Bridges, available through the Walton Arts Center. Mozart at the Museum, May 19th, beginning at 7 p.m., and heard live on your public radio station, KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, May 13th, 2022. I'm Timothy Dennis, and I'm pleased to be on the phone with Becca Martin-Brown. She's the features editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Becca, it's been a few years since we've talked. How have you been? I have been well. You know, I promised Kyle that we would try not to embarrass him while he was gone. Well, I can't make any guarantees for myself, but I'm sure you will do your best. (laughs) Oh, I'll do my best to embarrass him. Yes, thank you very much. So... You know I love theater, so if I get to talk about theater, I'm at my happiest. Right. And there's two options tonight in northwest Arkansas that sound so different and have a weirdly common theme. Fiddler on the Roof is open at the Walton Art Center, a touring company. You don't think about that as being a play about women's liberation. But I got to interview Kelly Murphy, who plays the oldest daughter's idol, and she pointed out that Zeidel is the first of Tevye's daughter to defy tradition and to make her own match with the man that she loves and to set the path for her sisters to follow 
which they do. And with the current state of the world, that seems wildly appropriate. This is a revival that's got all new dancing and all new, the same songs, but all new production. And so it should be old and familiar and brand new. Showtimes are 8 o'clock today, 2 and 8 tomorrow, and 2 on Sunday at the Walton Art Center. And tickets start at $55. Now, up the road at Arkansas Public Theater, there's a show called The Revolutionists that set the French Revolution. There's no singing, there's no marching, and no one on stage is male. This is about four women, sort of based on real people and sort of not, that are trying to figure out how to forward the women's side of the French Revolution most of them with words, and one of them with a knife. <laughs> I guess it begs the question, which is mightier, the pen or the sword? I guess it does. I should have written that. You're good. <laughs> it is a play by Lauren Gunderson, who lots of people love her work. And someone asked her if it was political, and she said, hell yes, it's political. It's a play about a moment in history where the rich and poor we're light years apart in lifestyle. The country was in multiple wars. The debt was huge. The workers overtaxed. Trust in the government was nil. The leaders were corrupt and greedy. There was racism, sexism, poverty, violence, extremism. The only difference between them and us is the year of the continent. I was about to say, it sounds vaguely familiar for some vaguely. reason. <laughs> Wonderful actors in this don't think that it will be no fun. But there's also a guillotine in it, so don't think that it will be no serious. Well, it either. is the French Revolution. It wouldn't really be, you know, a time period piece without a guillotine, right? Exactly. That's eight o'clock today and tomorrow, two on Sunday, it's the last weekend, and tickets start at twenty dollars. Now if you're looking for other things to do, on Saturday afternoon, there's a commemorative celebration. For the $1922 million free bridge. Yes, we had a brief story on this earlier this week. It, until we had the story this week, I didn't realize it was 100 years old or 100 years ago when they put the bridge in there. Me either. And this was this is the bridge that connects Fort Smith to Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge big deal in 1922. Yeah, supposedly one of the biggest crowds uh, gathered in Arkansas at that time, right? Exactly. More than 20,000 people, which, you know, big crowd in 1922. They've got cool images, and this is all going to happen at the Fort Smith National Historic Site, but the Fort Smith Museum of History is involved, and the Fort Smith Historical Society, and they're going to have a parade of vintage automobiles, and they're going to have a talk on the history of the construction. It sounds super cool. It's 1.30 to 4 o'clock on Saturday. It's free. How can you go wrong? Also on Saturday, oh my gosh, there's all kinds of things. There's a Hear Our Voices story time with Robert Lewis, an award-winning Native American storyteller at 11 at the Museum of Native American History in Bentonville. Mm -hmm. That's free. There's a VBTU community experience with hip-hop artists from 3 to 6 on Saturday at Onyx Coffee Lab in Rogers, hosted by Crystal Bridges. The River Valley Film Society is showing The Rock of Gibraltar at 7 o'clock Saturday at the Blue Air Training Facility on Airport Boulevard in Fort Smith. That's free. And The Momentary has a regional debut of a new work in dance called Core, and that's at 8 o'clock on Saturday and Sunday, tickets are 15 to $25. And then a teaser for next week. All right. It's been gone for two years. Okay. We hate COVID and we hate all the things that we missed, but the White Street Walk is back in Eureka Springs Ooh. on Friday the 20th. I will tell you more about it on Friday. It starts at 4 o'clock on Friday, so if you can't wait to listen to us, you can find White Street and it starts, it's from 4 to 10 o'clock, and Zeke's going to have his cookies. All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Becca. Uh, Becca Martin-Brown is the Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Stay cool, Becca. Absolutely.
Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Support for KUAF comes from Malco Theaters, offering reserved seating at the Rogers Cinema Grill, Springdale Cinema Grill, and Razorback Cinema Grill and IMAX Theater in Fayetteville. Showtimes, tickets, and more information available at malco.com or the Malco app. This is Ozarks at Large. Pastor Clint Schneckloth of Good Samaritan Lutheran Church in Fayetteville is an avid reader, and he frequently gives us reading recommendations. As part of his spring reading list, he discusses The Every by Dave Eggers with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums. So The Every is the next step, which is what if that big social media company bought the biggest company that distributed all the goods in the world? Uh-oh. Right? So, I mean, to be blunt, this is the merger of Meta and Amazon, right? That's the every. And they're not even very, you know, cryptic about that in this novel. He just says that it's, you know, that the the every bought a company named after uh, a large forest with a great river in it in South America. (laughs) (laughs) Narrows it down. (laughs) Narrows it down. (laughs) Right. Um, Okay, so the every... Uh, is 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 about that, and it's, he's very bluntly about that too, in the sense that he refused to allow this book to be sold on Amazon because mm-hmm. he's got so many concerns about that phenomenon. So the every is about the every, and what is so prescient about this book is he especially, and and this was true of the circle too. A lot of both of the novels are about the corporate culture that exists at the main campus of the corporation, you know, um, the, where where these where these big corporations like to build these campuses where they have all the accoutrements brought in. A lot of the people that get brought in to the every get brought in because they created something, and the every just goes and buys it. You know, they have some in- app that they invent or something like that, and then the and then the every wants to bring all those kinds of things in house, and so they do because they can because they have that kind of cash. Um, but once you're in there, it's like creepy how all these ideas that Dave Eggers have, you can both see how awful they are and why they would totally work both at the same time. So, like an example. The, one of the more creepy examples of, of something that happens at the Every is all, everybody that works in the Every is, is expected to rate, their, constantly rate their interactions with each other and then look at those ratings at the end of the day. And because there's kind of a quota, people will sometimes just like file something just to like get to the quota. But cumulatively, you're getting all this feedback about what your coworkers think about you. That does sound scary, and it does sound like something that would exist. And it would be a very effective form of social control. Yeah. Because imagine if you're always watched. But then it goes one step forward, farther, and somebody figures out how to actually monitor where your eyeballs go <laughs> throughout the day. And so then develops, and they do this globally, and so then this develops this whole like eye shame thing, right, of like people... Are, you have to train yourself not to look at well, but at the same time, in every that that tech is developing, the subculture within the company is that everybody has gone to wearing these full body lycra body suits so that there's nothing you can tell right about everything right, and and there's a one humorous scene, sad scene where when the every has a presidential candidate they don't like, they bring him for a tour at the every. And then they monitor his eyeballs, and he's never been in a context like this. So now he's, like, staring at and looking away from everybody's crotch or chest or whatever, overwhelmed by this because he's never seen a group of people all dressed like this in his presence before. And then they publish that information, and then that toy tanks his campaign, right? the, The problem with this book is every single thing he ever describes we could do tomorrow. We have the tech to do all of the stuff that he describes. The genius, and I thought this with the circle too, the genius it sounds like behind this too is that this can scare you no matter where you are on the political spectrum. Uh-huh. You could read this from one ideological side and think, oh God, this is scary. And someone who is you know, polar opposite than you will get the same experience. Right. Yeah. 
The other big move in this book is that the main character, she uh, g- goes to work for the, at the every with the goal of destroying it. And her, her method that she wants to pursue is she's going to plant really, really bad ideas, sell them to the company so that it goes one step too far and ultimately everybody rejects the every because it's gone too far. And the problem is, is that every single idea that she has, (laughs) they, they love she's, she's successful And and they implement them and nobody ever rejects them. So that's the thing about the every is they know that they're in this position to be able to for like change the whole world. And that's the philosophical question. Like, would it be worth it to completely take away people's freedom, but say, for example, end climate change? Ooh. Ooh. Interesting. Or another one, um, and this was true in the circle too. Think about this. There's a... Uh, one, okay, how many microphones are in this room right now? Well, there are three that we consider conventional microphones, mm-hmm. the two that we're speaking in, and the one if there was a third, a second guest. But I know that your phone has one, my mm-hmm. phone has one, probably this laptop has one. Okay, so my phone, which Apple makes, mm-hmm. they have the technology. It would be illegal for them to do this, but they have the technology to listen to our whole conversation. Of course they do. Without telling me that they're doing so. Of course they do, yeah. mm-hmm. If you and I knew that everything that we were saying and doing was listened to, how would our behaviors change? Well, I mean... Would you do something criminal? Well, no. (laughs) Okay, well, so you can stop crime. Like, say, child abuse. If you were constantly monitored. If you were constantly monitored. So shouldn't we constantly monitor people so that we can end child abuse? That's one of the questions that comes up in the book. Oof. And that's, we, that's just creepy to me because on the one hand, you know, you start reading the book and you're like, oh, yeah, this is awful. And then he keeps presenting things of like, oh, my gosh, I mean, well, huh. Oof. And that's, those are just a few. I mean, that's part of the issue with these both the circle and the every is he hits you with like just a wealth of these kinds of ideas all – in a very readable kind of narrative-driven space. You don't have to, I would suggest reading The Circle because I think it's fantastic, but you don't have to read The Circle to read The Every, even though it's a sequel. You don't have to. Um, you, you do encounter okay. the, uh, the, the, the main character, you know, the founders of The Circle, plus the person who okay. ends up that was the main character in the circle who becomes the CEO of the every, those people, if you want to know their background, you would have to read the circle. Dave Eggers, the every read it at your own risk. (laughs) Risk. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And make sure then there's someone you can talk to about it. I think. Yes. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I brought it actually, because I think maybe because he didn't want it on, on Amazon. I haven't talked to as many people who have read that. That was Pastor Clint Schneckloth of Good Samaritan Lutheran Church in Fayetteville. His reading recommendation today is The Every by Dave Eggers. He spoke recently with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellams. This is Ozarks at Large, and I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. With me is Courtney Lanning, a film critic with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Courtney, thank you for joining us today. Now, we have Sneakerella from Disney this week, and this film is not on Disney Channel, as I heard, only on Disney+. Plus. Right, and you know... Speaking of Disney Channel, though, this is sort of like a love letter to the Disney Channel original movies that millennials and Zoomers grew up with. Things like Xenon and The 13th Year and Wendy Wu. Uh, but you're right. This is on Disney Plus as opposed to regular Disney Channel. Gosh, I remember Wendy Wu as a child. That was my, like, watched it an innumerable amount of times. But <laughs> I'm afraid to go back and look at it. I'm like, I know I'm going to see so many things if I go back. So it's just burned well, in my memory. <laughs> if if you are curious and you work up the courage, that too is on Disney Plus. All those Disney original movies, uh, they are available on that service as well. 
Well, Courtney, what can we say as far as the the characters, the protagonists, and their interactions for Sneakerella? What are your thoughts? So Sneakerella is basically a retelling of Cinderella, but it's flipped. Uh, so instead of a uh, a girl who goes to the ball with glass slippers to try to earn the attention of a prince, this is the story set in modern day Queens about a uh, a guy who works in a shoe store who develops sneakers on the down low and he goes to a charity gala to try to get the attention of a girl he really likes who is the heir to like a sneaker empire. So they they flip the script and it's it's definitely a creative take. Definitely a creative take. Now this film is a musical comedy. What are your thoughts on the soundtrack? You know, unfortunately, while the, the central characters, Elle, our, our shoe store clerk, and Kira, the heir to our sneaker uh, fortune, while they're a cute couple um, and they make a great movie together, the soundtrack is the one thing that I feel like kind of weighs this down. Uh, the songs for Sneakerella, to be honest, they're pretty bland and forgettable. Um, they're not awful. They just don't offer anything spectacular. Maybe Lin-Manuel Miranda has kind of like ruined the quality of musicals for me in recent years because I expect so much of them. But as I said, uh, this is kind of like a Disney Channel original movie. So it's it would have been better if it was just a straight film without the song and dance numbers, I feel like. Absolutely. Courtney Lanning, what else is coming out this week? So the other big movie coming out this week is Firestarter. And uh, this is an adaptation of a Stephen King novel that I happen to like a lot. They remade this, or this is a, another take on the movie, I guess. They, they've made this movie a couple decades back, um, but from the previews, it, it doesn't look amazing. It's got Zac Efron in it, but um, I, I can't say too many great things based on the previews I've seen. Not, not super promising from the previews, I bet. Now, no. <laughs> what are you hoping to review next week? So next week, I'd like to bring you another Disney film. Uh, Disney is rebooting their Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and it looks like this is going to be the House of Mouse's take on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, so if I can snag a review copy of that, I'd love to chat with you about it next week. Well, Courtney Lanning, thank you so much for joining us this week. Of course. Thanks for having me. You can read Courtney's full review of Sneakerella today in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. For Ozarks at Large... I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. The Artisphere Festival Orchestra returns to Walton Arts Center with two main stage concerts under the baton of maestro Corrado Rivera's, featuring more than 90 premier musicians from around the world. Presenting works by Piazzolla, Martucci, and Mendelssohn on May 23rd, and an evening of Strauss and Stravinsky, May 27th. Tickets and more at artisphereFestival.org. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, Northwest Arkansas Retirement Community, catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of activities, living options, plus outdoor spaces, including access to city trails. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more information. This is 91.3 FM, KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Greenwood. 91.3 FM, KUAF is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Matthew Moore. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Kyle Kellams, Jacqueline Froelich, and Rachel Sanchez-Smith, who brought us our weekly conversation with film critic Courtney Lanning. Additional content from KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Thanks to Pastor Clint Schneckloth for providing us another spring reading recommendation and thanks also to Michael Tilly and Becca Martin-Brown for spending some time with us today. And thank you for spending part of your Friday with us. Daniel Carruth will be with you Sunday morning at 9 for an edition of Weekend Ozarks at Large, and I'll be back Monday with Race Rule Sanchez-Smith to start a new week of daily editions of Ozarks at Large. Until then, be well, stay cool, and have a great weekend.